Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. Welcome back to Leftover. I'm Arjun. I'm Nikita. And this week we are back talking about India like we said we would. And obviously India's been on the loose quite a bit in the last sort of month and a half or so for all the worst reasons. I mean, when is India ever in the news for, for good reasons, right? To talk with us about the current COVID crisis in particular in India and many other things. Writer and journalist Nicole Ann Lobo, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, yeah, I'm Nicole Ann. Uh, I'm just, I'm a journalist and I work for a Descent magazine right now. And um, in the fall, I'm starting a PhD program in art history. And I sort of, my research focuses on the legacy of Portuguese colonialism in India. Uh, I try to write from a Marxist perspective. Awesome. A good place to get started maybe with this discussion is the piece that you wrote, uh, which came out on Descent magazine, um, I think about two or three days ago, uh, about the the COVID crisis in India right now. Uh, And in particular, sort of the broader structural deficiencies of neoliberalism, which have led us to where we are, um, you know, and I think mm. that that in itself works at many, many different layers. The current situation in India is really fucking bad, isn't it? It's pretty horrific. And the sad part is that, you know, even with how like urgent a lot of the coverage um, has been, the numbers don't even begin to get close to documenting just how widespread of a catastrophe <laughs> what's going on in India is. Um, yeah. It's just on, on, on a magnitude that I think is like almost unimaginable. Because obviously, you know, people are getting drips and drabs from the media uh, and so on. And even then, I think it's quite difficult to get a full picture, like you said, partially because of how much information is being suppressed by the government. Mm. The lack of testing, for example, means that, you know, the numbers that we have available are simply not going to be accurate. But yeah, I mean, for me, just at a personal level, uh, you know, all my family's in India, pretty much. And my aunt has been in hospital uh, on ventilation. Um, she's recovered and the doctors have been very, um, very impressed with her recovery and she should be discharged soon. Another uncle has also been in hospital for COVID. The number of family friends of my parents, for example, like the number of family uh, fr- friends that my, that my parents have lost just in the last couple of months um, and it really feels like every single day, every single day, you're hearing about someone that you know personally or that you know that someone knows is either critically ill or has died. Yeah, I mean, these numbers, you know, it's it's a bit of a cliche thing to say, maybe, you know, but at the end of the day, there's it's people behind every single one of those, every single one of those mm. numbers. And um, yeah, it's just at this magnitude where it really feels like everyone is affected just at an individual level, at a personal level, even um, unlike anything I've I've seen before, or even over here at the peak, for example, there's not just a lack of reporting on it. Like there's quite wide scale cover ups going on as well, particularly in like Gujarat and Uttar Pradesh, and the the government in Uttar Pradesh are like 
try like threatening to trigger the National Security Act and something called the Gangster Act against mm. people for just sort of reporting what's going on. And, you know, this includes like threatening to, or, or maybe already seizing property of people. So there's like a real vested interest and there's like an effort to, for us to not hear what's going on. Oh yeah, definitely. I think, I think something that became really apparent to me while I was researching this article too, is just how much even what's published in the Indian media has been changing because of, you know, threats by the government and sort of the, uh, the influence of like Hindutva on like the na- the nation's press. So you know, a few months ago, there there was like a lot more reporting on how these widespread rallies um, Modi was having had thousands of people in attendance. And after yeah. you know that April, like that sort of, I think it was the third week of April or so, uh, when he sort of went back and said, actually, we're not going to have any more than five hundred people at any of these rallies. Um, it's almost impossible to find on any Indian news site an article reporting that there were actually thousands of people in attendance, <laughs> which to me was kind of terrifying. That there is this sort of like, um, yeah, going back and like covering up um, even what has already been reported. Um, this like level of censorship, I think, is. Um, pretty unimaginable. We're managing to hear about some of it from like, so Twitter will only, at the behest of the government, they will censor things, but it's only censored in India. So there are posts Mm. that, you know, people in India can't see that we can. Um, But it's obviously a lot bigger than that and more far ranging. Yeah. And I mean, literally the number of people uh, who have been picked up by the police for criticising the government's response to covid uh, political prisoners, you know, has has been a, a, a sort of uh, an issue in, in India for the last couple of years already. I mean, and Modi's really ramped it up ever since getting re-elected. Any sort of criticism of the government is being branded as anti-national, uh, as being sedition, uh, and people people are being picked up. But especially right now, you know, with the with the COVID reportage, um, people having to to take their social media posts down, people getting you know picked up for social media posts. And yeah, like you're saying, just this really sort of very draconian censorship uh, that's that's going on. And yeah, part part of the reason, um, you know, we don't have proper figures, for example, is because of uh, a, a huge lack in testing, um, you know, a huge lack in value towards uh, towards when you could when you consider the fact that. 80% of the economy is ag- is informal. When you look at the number of people in India who live either on the poverty line or just, just above the poverty line, the value of life is just, you know, these people genuinely don't matter. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, especially among the, the sort of Indian bourgeoisie, especially like the, 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 the urban middle class, especially the urban middle class, which is like really kind of, kind of risen in the last like 30 years since the, the market liberalization of India. There's such a disdain almost, you know, towards towards this underclass, you know, so like anything that actually happens, you know, like the number of people that die or whatever, the number of people that, that get ill, um, their lives genuinely don't matter. So, you know, like, uh, yeah. like even the idea that, that their deaths would be counted, you know, it's, it's kind of out of the question even. I don't know if that made a lot of sense. <laughs> it's kind of symbolic of the way the first wave went down where there was like four hours notice and then this like huge draconian lockdown. You know, a lot of these informal workers who are migrating from other states or migrating from, you know, the villages way out into the cities, they are living hand to mouth. 
they don't have savings um they they you know their work is immediately disappeared and they have no choice but to walk hundreds of miles back to you know where their families are say they've got family who are dying and they want to see them again or their families back home are relying on them for money that they were sending back and now there's no money and they have to go back and work there um there's just like a massive disregard for these people mm. Oh, definitely. And actually, you know, sort of what you're saying reminds me a lot about the way that demonetization played out yes, in India yeah. a few years ago, mm-hmm. where the significance of the four hours, I think, is kind of crucial because back in 2016, yeah. um, you know, within four hours, all 500 and 1000 rupee notes were rendered invalid. And who did this hit hardest? People, you know, in the informal sectors, agricultural workers. And it's so interesting that sort of similar to the logic of the lockdown, Modi tied the need for these initiatives to the brand of suffering that I think really harkens back to some of the messaging that was spread right at the birth of the Indian nation about individual duty and sacrifice and whose lives needed to be sacrificed for some sense of national glory. Um, and, you know, essentially overnight with demonetization, 86% of the cash in India's economy was no longer valid. And um, it's thought to have wiped like 1% of the nation's GDP and cost around 1.5 million jobs. And there were like so many deaths like tied to it. And, you know, <laughs> I think similarly with the lockdown, there was this idea that by, I mean, curtailing coronavirus with demonetization, it was all about curtailing, quote unquote, corruption and um, illegal yeah. money in the market. <laughs> At the end of the day, it just ends up hurting the most vulnerable. And it sets um, India further back on the world stage as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, specifically, um, what happened last year, as Nikita was saying, um, with all these laborers who got stranded, uh, is that they had no way to get back home either. So, um, I mean, many people may have seen images and videos of these people just walking hundreds of kilometers back home with luggage on their bags, with their whole families, with their kids carrying, you know, sacks of, you know, all their belongings, hundreds of kilometers in the middle of the night, you know, families getting run over by trains, you know, because they're so tired, they have to like, go to sleep. And then like, uh, you know, entire families getting, um, you know, hit by trucks, horrendous, horrendous kind of stories that you that you um, that you heard last year. And yeah, it comes down to this like total dis- disregard, really. Um, towards towards life you know and it's certain kinds of lives certain people's lives are just deemed completely disposable um and i think before we sort of i think we've already kind of gotten a little bit too uh, far ahead of ourselves uh because um sort of more specifically um with regards to the current situation in india and sort of how bad it is um nicole what would you say are some of the some of the main reasons for how the situation currently with the second wave has gotten as severe as it is? Mm. I think, you know, in order to really sustain a national lockdown, um, it's you can't just declare a lockdown and expect that the coronavirus will be sort of contained. What you need is like sort of robust investment in individuals and exactly in the sort of lives that, as you say, are being entirely devalued. There's no way that you could sustain a lockdown without sort of some sort of social safety net so that families aren't starving, you know, so that um, people have some sort of alternative to going to work. Like it was just entirely unfeasible um, to expect people to stay home. But even apart from the whole staying home thing, because I think the idea of the lockdown was also quite middle class, like 
with the public health system as it already exists in India, um, there just has not been the sort of infrastructure to care for people who are sick, to care for people who can, can, can contract the virus. And even mm-hmm. when people are going into the hospital, like, and this is speaking from personal experience, like from family um, family members who had to go into the hospital um, with other diseases, like it was almost guaranteed um, that if you were to go in, um, you would basically contract coronavirus <laughs> because of how yeah. um, just poor the facilities were and um, how short-staffed, um, in particular, like state-run facilities are. But yeah, I think it's sort of a mix of just really terrible government response, um, a, like a horrible ra- vaccine rollout and um, just like awful um, like healthcare <laughs> as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that last point is especially important to point out because it's like, obviously, uh, you know, Modi's particular response to this to this has been horrendous. But, you know, successive governments in India have not, spent money on 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 the public health system at all i think like less than one percent of uh, india's gdp is actually spent um on healthcare. yeah i mean as a result of this you know that this is why i mean the a couple of places where we've actually sort of where they've actually bucked the trend which is you know like kerala and Tamil Nadu, for example like we've seen relative relative success i mean even there it's not been I think it's important to also like not romanticize the the, the situation in Kerala as well, um, but um, at the same time, there is a sort of marked difference there, and and um, yeah, just the general sort of uh, emphasis on on primary healthcare is just not there in India at all, and the infrastructure is just not really there, um, you know, which is why, you know, uh, you have these situations where you know people are getting you know taken from hospital to hospital begging for oxygen, you know, because there's just been no forward planning whatsoever. You know, there's been no um, no sort of centralized directive to actually stockpile or whatever, you know, in, in, in case of these kinds of contingencies. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, that, that in itself speaks to like a broader, I think, approach to governance as well, right? For example, um, in Cuba, which is also a poor country, but healthcare, it, Cuba has one of the best healthcare systems in the world. It comes down to a matter of priorities. And in India, I think public healthcare has just never been a priority. And I think it's quite important to to actually realise that. Yeah, it depends on where there's willingness to invest and to be prepared. Like, like India is not terrible for things like child immunisation, but that means they probably should have the infrastructure in order to do the vaccination rollout, but they don't because it's not something they've invested in or cared about. And these vaccination issues did exist before the coronavirus. I think with, you know, the lack of investment in public health, you can take it back sort of um, several regimes <laughs> well before Modi. This is, you know, I think yeah. the danger with this line of reasoning is that um, it's like a really fine balance you have to strike between not letting Modi off the hook for all of his individual yeah. failures as prime minister, while at the same time realizing that the reason that the crisis is what it is in India today is because of um, like structural flaws like at the genesis of the Indian nation with yeah. what the duty of yeah. the government was and how powers and budgeting priorities would sort of be allocated to states and um, to different bodies. Um, and sort of also the individuation of... Um, of health as not 
concern that the public or the government needs to care about but that's sort of on you exactly whereas like it comes back to sacrifice right like sort of a, a thing over <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes uh, the national duty and yeah i mean this has obviously this whole situation um has obviously been exacerbated by the global system of vaccine patents uh and intellectual property laws um you know which has hampered the, well, I mean, even though, what is it, um, two, uh, I think AstraZeneca and Covaxin are both manufactured in India. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, 2%, 2.5% of the population has been vaccinated, has had the full vaccination by now. And uh, less than 10%, so like 9.8% has had the first dose so far, um, as, of, as of recording. And a lot of this comes down to the fact that, um, yeah, I mean, even though India is actually pr- manufacturing the vaccines, they're not actually a- allowed to. I mean, they're, they're selling it off to, to, to the countries in the global north, basically. I mean, this is obviously a, a, a bigger problem of sort of global neoliberalism as well, right? You know, which has kind of led us to to this situation. It's also like resources too, because you can waive the IPs and stuff. But if India can't get its hands on, I don't know, Chilean tree bark or whatever other stuff you need, mm-hmm to make the vaccines and if they don't have their own well no they've got facilities but obviously like you know there has to be sharing of them and stuff mm-hmm. like it's it's not just as simple as like we'll let you have the patents um now you can make your own there's like a lack of resources as well yeah 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 like i actually think that's some of the coverage especially in the west of ip rights it's like a bit annoying that's <laughs> very just like like there was a jacobin article i think i read which was like india should just ignore ip rights and like what's gonna happen like what is the international world order gonna do <laughs> it's like mm. this is the most like un- nuanced argument that there is because yeah. i think that you know with with ip rights of course like there's a really important case to be made for how like you can't have profit incentive tied to like <laughs> concerns with global public health but there's a difference mm. if um if the decision to waive ip rights had come right at the start of the pandemic, like well before the vaccine had even been um, developed, then a lot of the, like a lot of developing countries would have had much more of an opportunity to sort of bulk up their own infrastructure with hopefully like the support of some of the multinational um, like organizations that have encouraged them to like disinvest in their own public sector over the past few decades. But like now, now the situation that we have is in certain states in India, today there was an announcement actually that like a free COVID vaccine will be available to many people or everyone over the age of 18 from a certain date and that the government would spend their money from um, tax, like taxpayers' money on these vaccines. But the problem is that the state governments actually have to purchase those vaccines at a monopolized price because, you know, the fascist government will not nationalize the manufacturers and won't bring the price down of those vaccines. So, like, inevitably, the money that's now being um, funneled into private corporations is taxpayer money that's going to like detract from other um, other public sector services that desperately need investment as well. More than 100 countries got together to, to seek a waiver to the WTO patent laws, right? And um, did the Biden administration actually confirm that they would also um, join? I think they did. Um, They've made the right noises. Yeah. They made the right noises at least. But but yeah, I mean, um, obviously a lot of it is symbolic, like you're saying, you know, because without the actual uh, manufacturing uh, capacity. But yeah, I mean, it is um, 
And at the same time, right now, for example, I think Washington, D.C. has been like flooded by lobbyists from all sorts of pharma companies for the last like couple of weeks, trying to make sure that this waiver isn't passed. Um, and I mean, all sorts of different arguments are, are, are being presented, like on the one hand, that that this is going to be not effective enough, but and that basically there's enough flexibility in those patent laws already to actually make this happen. On the other hand, they're saying that, you know, because if, if there is this waiver, then this is basically going to destabilize uh, US and the West uh, in favor of Russia and China and in the global geopolitical stage. <laughs> the broader issue with a lot of this stuff is that like the mRNA vaccine has like more than 100 different components and like a lot of those individually have like individual IP laws attached to them, you know, so it mm-hmm. just becomes such a massive sort of and and yeah, like over year over the years, basically, pharma lobbyists and yeah, big pharmaceutical companies have have, have made sure that there is this this kind of massive thicket of IP laws that exist that that kind of make it impossible. So regardless, so like that's kind of one of the reasons a lot of countries don't even apply for the licensing in the first place, uh, because there's there's so many other things that are actually protected, regardless that that it's it's still going to be impossible for them for them to actually manufacture the the vaccine. I don't think we we really talked about the difference between the first and the second wave. So there's also a reluctance to take up vaccinations as well because effectively the first wave just was not as bad as expected and. The the BJP and Modi kind of viewed it as like a victory. By March, you know, they were saying they were in endgame and, you know, people were becoming complacent. There was there were senior BJP people saying that you don't need to wear masks. But then even, you know, in March when they were saying an end, they were in endgame, cases were creeping up. And they were, they were saying that, you know, we have herd immunity now, even though about 21% of people had the um, antibodies. Even with the vaccinations, however badly they're being rolled out, there's also a reluctance to take them because there was a view that the pandemic was already over in India because India is exceptional, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was there was this kind of weird um, thing, definitely, from on the ground um this idea that like the recovery rate in india is very high or that yeah india somehow just made it out way better than than other countries and and also like the fact that modi announced that lockdown in like yeah whatever his four days um announcement yeah i think that was also kind of used as a benchmark i mean he he used that to to kind of big himself up on the world stage basically yeah he's put his face to that and and once again it's it's difficult to have like exact data on this but like every country in south asia more or less had the same kind of death tolls and a lot of it in india still mm-hmm. went underreported uh and that's once again because it pretty much all happened to poor people yeah. I, I mean so so even this idea that like the first wave in india didn't actually hit as bad isn't really true Maybe just in terms of like deaths per million because of the sheer size of India's population. But India still was affected pretty badly by the first wave as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, even within India, like the certain states during the first wave that were reporting really high numbers of cases, um, you know, states like like Kerala, where like they were one of the most proactive at procuring PCR tests. Um, So the Mm -hmm. reason like why case numbers looked so high there was just because people were actually getting tested which is i think in some exactly. ways sort of sort of similar like to the to the logic of um certain states being hotbeds for for coronavirus in america as well like 
um, and you see like entire towns have been decimated as like as testing rates go up. So I think that's sort of the myth about yeah the first and second wave being so different. It's just really difficult to to actually know <laughs> because of the research. Ah, fair enough. I was like, I don't yeah. know if people agree with this, but like I think a difference with the first and second is there was a strong central response to the first one, mm-hmm. and the second mm-hmm. one they seem to the the central government has seemed to just sort of abdicated responsibility and just gone you dif- different states you can deal with this your way. Oh yeah, totally. I think that's completely right. Yeah, definitely. But at the same time, I think it's also important to like note that in India, like. The central government's role is always going to be limited in a place like India, just because, firstly, how big India is and the fact that it already has this federalized system anyway. You know, like, for example, in the Northeast, like, the central government actually has very little reach out there, for example. India is always one of those places where, like, regardless of how sort of authoritarian a central government tries to be, there is always going to be a certain like level of lawlessness. I think. I think it's like kind of. Uh, it's but it's it's true. It's, I think it's kind of kind of important to because it's not like you know India just cannot have the same kind of lockdown response that China can do. You know, for example, or even like Vietnam, for example, you could do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just part, yeah, and, and for many different reasons. I mean, the India central government just like doesn't have the same kind of reach. I think as like some of these other governments, which is why it has been so different as well, the response from region to region, even in the first wave, for example. Mm. But but even then, you know, during the first wave, yeah, like, well, just, just the fact that all these people got stranded, for example, that, that, some, that was something that was universal throughout India uh, at that point. With regards to the second wave, there's the new variants, which are just way more contagious. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's the UK variant and the, the Indian variant. These are themselves, I think, also, like, there's multiple variants of these variants. Uh, <laughs> but um, that, the, the main thing is that, uh, is that it's ex- extremely contagious. That sort of throws everything up in the air as well a little bit. I would actually really say that, like, building off of what you were saying about, um, what both of you were saying about the state versus, like, centralised government response, sort of because of the vastness of India, it's so impossible to really have, like, an efficacious central response because like India has never really existed as like one nation entirely the the concept of India as a nation is like a colonial (laughs) construct but I mean it really like it really because of this vastness um it's lends like the logic of um sort of xenophobic nationalism um um, to be even more like potent, especially during coronavirus. You think back to like when the first cases started to be really reported in the press. I mean, coronavirus cases were reported in India as early as January, but it didn't really become a thing mm-hmm. until the spring when you had the uh, Tablighi Jamaat um, like gathering of 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 Muslims. And yeah, yeah, turns yeah. out like it was so easy for the government to blame like you know these large crowds exactly. of Muslims for being the ones who were the vectors spreading mm-hmm. the virus. But that logic has not been extended um, during the second wave to. Modi's rallies and um, to other other religions as well, hosting the gatherings. I mean, the Kumela was, I mean, how many millions of people go to the Kumela every year and that just happened and that was one of the biggest super spreaders ever, basically, because this happened just as the spike was happening. But you've got the chief minister saying that the River Ganges will protect you from the coronavirus. <laughs> so that one doesn't matter, obviously. <laughs> Oh, I think, yeah, when we, if we talk about like COVID in India, I think we have to also talk about some of the insane fucking whack, 
uh, like sorry, quack <laughs> medicines, uh, you know, like um, or treatments that, that have been suggested, uh, you know, like including like drinking like cow's piss and things like that to to cure corona. I mean, just all sorts of absolutely fucking insane shit. <laughs> I said this to you like weeks ago. I was like, we need to look this up because someone is probably like touting cow urine as a as a cure to corona. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say that or did that actually happen? I'm pretty sure it actually happened. <laughs> I, I remember before, before I, I, um, I was like, I know it. Well, I know I this just, is going to be just, a Have thing. I just Mandela effect it? <laughs> oh, you might have. You, I, don't, I thought you just checked it. Cause, um, but yeah, you've got like fucking union health ministers like pushing and I'm going to pronounce this wrong. I, Ayurvedic. Um, yeah, yeah. Like mm-hmm. drugs and stuff. And they're saying... They're lying to people who are saying the World Health Organization has approved this. Who <laughs> are <laughs> uh, like having to issue statements saying like, no, we've we've not done this. Like we've not approved of this at all. Yeah, I mean, other than the sort of uh quack medicines, um and yeah, sort of praying the corona away and that kind of nonsense <laughs> uh that you also that you also saw. I mean, like, other than the the Kumela, which was a big super spreader recently, there were state elections uh, across multiple states in mm. India recently. And and the BJP had a lot invested in these elections as well, uh, which is why, you know, Modi was showing up to these massive election rallies and he didn't give a shit and he was showing up without a mask. Um, and this is, I think, what you were referring to before anyway, uh, Nicole, right? I mean, these these big rallies that, that Modi was showing up to and they were mostly for the state elections in, in West Bengal and Tamil Nadu. Uh, in, in Assam, and I sort of mentioned this in the in the last episode as well, obviously. But like in West Bengal, they didn't come into power, which was like the biggest fear, really. Um, they they nearly were the biggest party there during the twenty nineteen general election uh, because the left front completely collapsed, especially in the last two years. I mean, the BJP had just poured in money, poured in resources into West Bengal, into actually you know getting power there, and they got absolutely destroyed at these elections the only place where they actually uh kept power was in assam in Tamil Nadu as well it was a sort of centrist um party that came into power and, and uh the communists kept power in, in in kerala um so maybe this crisis is what it takes to stop the modi machine i mean and as fucking horrible as that might be I mean, do you see Modi's response to this genuinely affecting his uh, his chances at the next election and his general sort of grip on power? I think that's a really interesting question because, I mean, I've heard arguments on both sides and ultimately I think it is still definitely uh, too early to tell. I would err more on the mm-hmm. side of saying it's probably not actually going to make that big of a difference mainly because of like i mentioned earlier with demonetization there was a lot of sort of widespread um expectation <laughs> at the last election that because of how massive mm-hmm. of a failure it was and how much it crippled the economy that ultimately modi would really suffer and he proved quite resilient but what i think is actually significant anyway is that whether or not modi um wins re-election in the bjp um keeps their grip on power. Um, ultimately, Modi has really remade nationalism in a sense, and has sort of reshaped what India's um, political landscape can look like. Like the candidate that 
um, that the BJP lost to in West Bengal is also a populist. It's sort of becoming um, a political climate of the battle of the populisms. And, you know, this is sort of, I mean, I guess... I mean, Mamata Banerjee is is is, uh, is her own beast. <laughs> she's, she's, quite, <laughs> quite rem- <laughs> she's quite incredible. <laughs> Genuinely. I mean, she's, 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 genu- she's insane. Like, she's actually crazy. <laughs> but, like, <Jeez>. you know... <laughs> <laughs> uh I like I never ever thought that I would I would be like relieved to see Trinamul win uh, 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 an election but here we are you know that's that's how bad things have been in India <laughs> that's how hopeless things have felt um but I I I definitely agree in, in the sense that I think that like you know if you look at the states and how Trump's response to covid was mostly the reason that he didn't get reelected, at least I I would say so. Um, and the Democrats actually took advantage of that, but they have like a huge fucking machinery behind them. And uh, I mean, they are a disgusting political party by every imagination, but like they were really mm. smart about how they went about with that. Whereas on the other hand, you know, you've got in India, the the, the Congress is pretty much, I mean, there is no real viable opposition. And this is the this was the issue before, which is kind of what made it feel so hopeless. Um, and even now, I mean, sort of in the run up to COVID, obviously, you know, there, there, were the, there were the major mobilizations against the NRC and the CAA. And then recently there were the, the farmer protests as well. So there is definitely a lot of widespread anger and resentment towards the government. But the question is, like, whether mm. it can be... Um, organized politically uh, as an opposition uh, especially when it comes to an election um, and who's going to lead that yeah just like like you were saying because india is so big uh, a lot of this opposition a lot of the people who are beating modi it's very like local parties right like state parties mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. i think uh, on the on the american note i'm not sure i would necessarily agree that coronavirus was to blame for trump's failure um, okay. I think coming, so actually, I, I came, I actually came, um, uh, came back from the States, got vaccinated there, and it's insane, um, not to like shift quickly to the American situation, but there are interesting, like, no, 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 parallels, um, with like the sort of the culture of being anti vaccine in America. Like, it's, mm. I don't know, like, the, there was a report that came out last week that two, um, like, corporate pharmacies, um, have wasted like hundreds of thousands of doses of the vaccine in America just because of how much of the population like fully doesn't believe like they believe that the government is trying to like implant a chip into them <laughs> and they believe that like yeah, the, yeah. the vaccine is sort of like a hoax and they don't even actually believe that coronavirus is real the whole anti-vax stuff has been like proliferating in America for a much longer time anyway right mm. no it definitely it definitely has and I think actually it ties into something that you had mentioned about the sort of um the only way to actually effectively mobilize against like such a like horrible response is to is is yeah to have um a really strategic and grounds up organization in your opposition and i think that that's something that sort of surprisingly the democrats were able to do but they only pulled it off 
by like a hair, you know. And I think that in America, in yeah. uh, India, because because of like the vastness and because of how many more local parties there are, as opposed to just like the two party system, um, especially given sort of the death of Congress, I think um, I think it's going to be much more difficult of a task than it was in the states. I mean, the death of Congress and the the Communist Party, and you know, the, mm. the left front in general, you know, um, except for in Kerala, I mean, the left front is pretty much done. Um, in West Bengal, I mean, it's, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I do want to do an episode at some point about, uh, the history of leftism in, in Bengal, uh, because mm. it's, uh, it's, it's pretty <laughs> fucking tragic to see, like, what the situation of the, with the left is as an organized political force in Bengal right now, because it's really, really bad. Yeah. And it's coded with all this, like, Brahminical symbolism and it just is, um, it's, it's tragic. <laughs> like, the fact that, you know, at the 2019 election, basically because the the Communist Party of India, brackets Marxist, <laughs> CPIM, uh, they uh, they were in power in, in West Bengal from 1977 to uh, 2011. And they got beaten by Trinamool Congress at that time. And, and one of the biggest reasons for their downfall was what happened in, in, Nondi, in Nondigram in um, 2006-07, around that time, when they basically tried to implement special economic zones, similar to what China has done. Uh, so just certain areas where multinational corporations can come in and just uh, set up shop and have very low tax rates. And uh, as a result of this, locals and uh, indigenous mm-hmm. people would have had to be uh, evicted from the land. And they said that they wouldn't, and they pitched up, and they said that they wouldn't. And then the you know the central government basically sent in thugs and sent in their police, and and massacred people. Um, you know, raped women. It was it was a really really horrendous fucking situation. And I mean, especially considering that the, the Communist Party came into power in, in Bengal mostly through off the back of land reform. And I mean, you know, land ownership is still a, a massive issue. This was really like the last straw for a lot of people. Nondigram is also like the the, the Mother Banerjee's seat um, as well. Um, and so she, um, like, they, they they were very much able to, like, and the Trinamool, I mean, they, they're, they're very much, you know, a, a party full of, you know, rank opportunists, <laughs> to, 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 say the, uh, to, to, to say the least. Uh, but they were, yeah, able to, you know, use that situation, weaponize that situation and, and actually come into power at that point. And because CPM was so bitter about that defeat in 2011, they helped the BJP. They campaigned for the BJP at the last election. Lots of ex-CPM people went over to the BJP in order to actually stop Trinamool. And I know we're, we're you know, we've gone pretty far away from the, the situation about, uh, uh, from the discussion about about COVID right now. But I mean, I, I, I did say I, I wanted to talk a little bit about this because uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's genuinely just a, a really sort of shocking situation there at the moment. And um, I mean, even though obviously this was a, a massive relief, the fact that BJP didn't come into power there, the overall situation in West Bengal is still really not great. And if anything, it was just a, a slight breather, um, you know, considering how bad the, the overall crisis still is. It's a phenomenon that's now been seen sort of in various states in India. I would say in Kerala as well, you know, the Communist Party had much more of a stronghold <laughs> than it does now. And yeah. it's largely because of... Um, the failure to, I think, sufficiently address caste in some senses and, um, you know, 
I think I think you really need that sort of intersectional like material approach to win people over, especially in, in this climate when the BJP has so much like empty virtue signaling about caste that is completely contradictory to their sort of actual policies. Well, oh, because of, of course, this, yeah. like they were able they were able to like win over many of the same sort of disgruntled um, communist former communist um, or like potential <laughs> communist voters who didn't have a home anymore. Yeah, when it comes to the question of of coverage as well, and I think we were talking earlier a bit about Western coverage of the crisis. You know, we, we you mentioned a bit about the coverage about the vaccine patents and and how that hasn't exactly been uh, been great. But generally speaking, um, this whole issue about the funeral pies, for example, and there's this kind of weird weird fascination, I think, uh, with you know these these images of these these funeral pies. But at the same time, I mean, there are you know these Pies are reportedly, you know, loading up ten bodies at once. You know, I mean, it's it's a, it's a pretty dire situation in in a lot of these places, and and um, there is this general like concerted effort to suppress information as well. And one of the lines that the that the BJP is using is that it's uh, is that it's apparently against Hindu tradition to take pictures and and broadcast pictures from funeral pyres. Which is just just nonsense. It's just I mean, you know, like the last BJP prime minister who died, Vajpayee. I mean, he had a, a state cremation live on TV, for example. You know, and Modi was there in attendance. <laughs> I think you know when it comes to this kind of stuff, and like we were mentioning in in the previous episode about India as well, um, a lot of this bullshit that the Hindu far right will say to try to, you know, get away with their nonsense, um, especially when it comes to yeah. how it's covered in the West. I mean, I think a lot of it just goes on the presumption that a lot of people here just don't know and, and don't, ca- like, care enough to want to know. The diaspora does, the, like, the Hindu diaspora does this, like, quite tumblery Instacard kind of <laughs> propaganda <laughs> where it's, like, <laughs> sort of, like, defending and upholding... Hindu nationalism in like I mean I don't I try not to use this word but like a, a woke and progressive way where like, you know <laughs> I, you know I'm a, I'm an Indian person therefore everything I say you know I'm in the diaspora therefore it's like you know you can't you can't do this it's disrespectful it's devaluing the you know, brown bodies or whatever to show funeral pies when actually what they're doing is they're acting as foot soldiers and they're doing BJP propaganda for them and <laughs> and you know suppressing. <laughs> like truth effectively Mm. oh yeah totally and i think it also like really effectively shifts the discourse right away from actually like the ways in which modi and the bgp are using um the crisis as um a form of political opportunism in a way like they're really like the government's approach i think has really followed like followed um the model of disaster capitalism where um while you know within india but also the international community are so um focused on i mean like rightfully so <laughs> to an extent on the scale of death um they're not paying attention to the ways in which um india is like dismantling other uh public infrastructure and um like so the international like, conservationist community has not really been sounding the alarms on the fact that since 
the lockdown was announced last year, um, within like two weeks, the National Board for Wildlife in India um, approved 16 proposals that would essentially demolish national parks and wildlife sanctuaries, um, including um, like stone mining in Kota, like railways going through Telangana, um, the desecration of the biggest uh, wildlife sanctuary in Goa, Malam, and there's just been no way to resist it because of uh, because of how it's just provided like a sort of distraction, right? Same with like um, like crackdowns on media freedoms. Um. Yeah, because all this this imagery is just you know the smoke and the fire, mm-hmm. and I just keep I got this image in my head of like you know, like Nero like fiddling, not fiddling, playing the fiddle <laughs> while Rome burns. Well. Like this, I, just, <laughs> I mean, he might be. I don't want to know. But like, <laughs> It's like the the image I got ahead because it's all yeah. it's not just this that's going on right now. Yeah, and we talked about it in the last uh, India episode. This you know arresting people for sedition, internet blackouts. What I mentioned earlier about you know the, the gangster act and stuff. The coronavirus has been seized as an opportunity to curtail civil liberties even more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So specifically, I think yeah, we were just briefly before recording talking about the issue with climate as well right yeah like i was saying like last year for example a lot of the people who were affected worst by by lockdown you know who got stranded and had to walk hundreds of kilometers home uh, a lot of these you know laborers when they went back to the sundarbans which borders um west bengal and bangladesh and then that got hit by cyclone amphan last summer in last june i mean the the scale of devastation i mean i think something like um three million people were 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 evacuated um and yeah just countless people who've just you know had their entire lives upended one day they've had to like come back and then basically have to try to try to start anew and then just get hit by a second crisis as well the fact is you know in order to respond to crises whether it is the climate whether it is pandemics or whatever you need robust public infrastructure in order to do that and India just has never really had that. I mean, aside from certain kind of food redistribution um, systems, which were set up during the Green Revolution, for example, but even they have a lot of issues as well, for example. I mean, it's it's a really carb-heavy diet. So, I mean, it ends up actually leading to a lot of uh, malnourishment as well. So, I mean, like hunger never really fully ended, uh, even after the Green Revolution. And um, the thing is, like these kind of systems always hang in on 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 a really sort of fine balance, you know. Especially at a time like this, you know, we we see how uh, how vulnerable they are, really. Um, and you know, without the right kind of you know fallback systems in place, without the right kind of safety net systems in place, how severe the disaster can actually become. And I think that's really what we're mm-hmm. seeing playing out more than anything else right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when it comes to investment, you know, public public sector investment, I mean, it is India's problem because India, since, you know, since the beginning of the nation has failed yeah. to adequately um, commit enough money in the GDP uh, to public health policies. Right now, I think they're spending like less than 1%, I think, when you fix... Yeah, less than 1%. It's about 0.34% of the GDP goes to public health. But it's not just, I mean, it is India's problem. But but like we were talking about earlier, too, it's part of the fact that there are so many um, 
global pressures on India to perform, like to sort of exit the status as a, a, a recipient of international aid and move towards the sort of international credit lender status that has required um, wide scale privatization that has been incentivized through organizations like the World Bank, which um, sort of ironically are now the ones writing billions of dollars in loans, emergency loans to India that will only, you know, further devastate the economy and put India further behind. Um, but the sense of investment in public health is not just a local or national failure. It's something that's been um, sort of time and again emphasized through like the Bretton Woods, like global order. This drive for India to be the next superpower, which has kind of been there, especially since the early 90s, um, you know, with the rise of India and China sort of simultaneously. And India seeing itself as like a sort of competitor to China, even. Um, which is a bit of a joke, uh, uh, but um, it's it's embarrassing on the one hand, and it's kind of like you can kind mm. of laugh at it, and this this sense of self importance that um, that India has towards itself, um, especially when you actually look at the situation on the ground, and yeah, just just the still the, the widespread poverty, the widespread um, you know lack of infrastructure generally. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's there, but just for very, very few people. Yeah, you can kind of laugh at it on the one hand, but then on the other hand, it, it kind of like leads to situations like this, um, which are mm -hmm. kind of devastating. I don't know. Yeah, it's like these very these two very grim pictures of like there's aid being sent over from the global north that's just sitting in hangars because the central government is so disorganised they don't know where to give it and they don't know what to do with it or how to get it places. But then they're also dick swinging on the Chinese border. Like, there's just there's this India of, like, who it is and who it's trying to be. Mm. Well, yeah, when, when India had uh, quote-unquote skirmishes with China... Uh, like skirmishes. <laughs> that was oh my god that was that was so bad um and they just like created these like fake propaganda videos of like some pilots <laughs> like them like shooting some fire shooting some pilots out of the sky and it was just like they literally just made it up uh they got like they mm. they took some footage from from something completely different uh i remember at the time like there was this big drive within india like to show that, you know, you are anti-Chinese, that, you know, people were, like, taking their Chinese electronics and, like, smashing them in public. It's <laughs> 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 like taking massive TVs and stuff and, like, smashing them in public in this mm. sort of uh, display of national pride, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> It's like um, Trump fans pouring the Coca Cola down the loo. <laughs> oh, right now, there's about four hundred fifty thousand cases a day uh, recorded, uh, and once again, these numbers are likely the real numbers are some magnitudes higher. Um, there's about between three and four thousand deaths a day at the moment. Um, again, recorded. Um, Likely much oh, yeah, they're higher. currently accounting for half half of all global cases right now of coronavirus. Oh. Yeah, I think that um, I I read some independent reporting that that the death toll is definitely well over a million at this point. Um, but part of it, sure. the problem is that I mean the the government's guidance for how you can document 
COVID related deaths is like super yeah. draconian. Like you have to like, so as a result, many people who are actually dying from COVID, like on their death certificates, it's being documented as like different causes. And these are the people who like yeah. are getting officially documented like deaths, which, um, yeah. which of course, in like more, more rural parts of India, it's not even, um, not even reaching that standard yet. Yeah. I mean, in, in rural parts of India, like a lot of people will just be dying at home. They wouldn't have anything close to, to, to access to a hospital. And, um, yeah, like the idea like that there's primary healthcare, you know, which actually reaches to the rural areas. It just doesn't exist in, in lots of parts of India. Kerala is one of the few places where it does. Um, and it's one of the reasons why it did kind of buck the trend a little bit. Um, that, you know, uh, even though infection rates are high and partially, partially that's because of what, you know, better, better, better testing as well. Death rates have been generally a lot lower. This is un- inconclusive whether the... And apparently... The most recent reports are that the death rates are dropping in Kerala as well right now. Uh, but again, this is inconclusive and it's it's hard to say whether this is because of anything specific to do with Kerala's healthcare system or, you know, other things such as, you know, like the fact that there's fewer deaths on the road or whatever, you know, because there's a lockdown. Um, this is just some of the data that's, that's, that's come through more recently. Another thing that, that was quite sort of disturbing as well recently was that Australia has said that they're going to put anyone in jail who's travelled there uh, after having been in India for like two weeks prior. And I think that's the Jeez. most sort of draconian... Uh, because two, there were two cricketers in, in, Australia, in Australia because there was a, a travel ban from India, so they actually skirted it by tra- flying to Qatar uh, and um, coming that way. And so, yeah, Australia actually passed a law saying that they're actually going to jail... Um, anyone who has been in India two weeks prior to traveling to Australia, which is also a pretty terrifying precedent generally, I think. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And there's, there's a definite like racialized aspect to that. I think would that have happened here when like you're in the midst of a horrible second wave, would that have happened with English people going over to Australia? No. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't know. I mean, it didn't happen. (laughs) So I'm like, yeah, true, true. Um, I was like, am I, am I being like, am I being too, you know, hashtag Hindu phobic? Like, you know what I mean? Hashtag Hinduphobia. My brain is gone. Oh, by the way, I did Google it, and I did find an article that says. Hindu group hosts cow urine drinking party to ward of coronavirus. So we weren't right. There you go. We were right. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great picture as well. Maybe we should use that for the for the cover image. For the guy drinking cow piss. (laughs) (laughs) You should run for London Mayor. You should run for London Mayor. What's a, what's 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 a bigger catastrophe right now? Uh, India with regards to COVID or the Labour Party? Oh, oh. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I just I I feel just really quite depressed. I don't know. <laughs> like after after talking. Yeah, about it, I was thinking about this earlier. There's just there's nothing there's nothing good. Yeah. There? Yeah. Yeah. No, normally our episodes tend to be a little bit more sort of upbeat, and we tend to have a few more jokes and stuff. But like this is like really one of those things that. I mean, we, 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 I'm very glad that we have, and it's been really great to have you on. Thank you very much, Nicole. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's come on the miserable like, episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just one of those 
those uh, one of those topics, right? Um, mm. It's just a bit bit fucked. Um, yeah, that's one thing that made me like just sit and like stop reading for five minutes. Was um, there's I'll put it in the show notes. It's like Aaron Roy um, piece about yeah. human rights. Yeah, impact. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and she was talking about like in South Delhi, the forest department like had to give permission to use city trees for funeral kindling because they just would run out. Jeez, sorry about the tone down again. No, no, it's just I mean that's that's the thing though. It's just it is a topic that I think you know deserves to be treated with at least the right level of somberness. I don't know, like just some of the some of the images that I've seen, some of the some of the stories I've heard from on the ground. Um, you know just don't even really bear repeating um it's genuinely a, a fucking horror show there and um i mean yeah when you see like the number of uh sort of high profile journalists and celebrities and people like that even you know putting out calls for you know emergency oxygen or hospital beds and things like that i mean you you realize that because normally those are the kinds of people that that would just kind of have these these things met but yeah that's how bad the shortage is <laughs> even the yeah even the, yeah. the the wealthy and powerful in india are feeling it just the level of financial exploitation going on as well like yeah you know being fucked over for oxygen or you know you're devastating your your family's finances paying for private care because there isn't the the public health care mm. or you know medication on the informal market you're being bled for and like you said in your piece like it's not even like medication a lot of the time right. I think yeah. saying it was like coconut milk and something yeah. else <laughs> yeah exactly and water yeah I mean so much of it is also because of the government's misinformation and what exactly can be used to, t- to treat coronavirus like people just don't yeah. know it's just a situation of complete desperation and exploitation yeah even like priests are like charging through the nose to perform love rites on people it's a country full of fucking grifters that's why sorry yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe i'll cut yeah. that bit out <laughs> i mean Genuinely, I, I definitely though. like swelon said don't go into it don't go into business with a hindu i've definitely said like twice on the show, <laughs> i could say that i'm hindu yeah. <laughs> i mean you could you know, say it too i don't care <laughs> <laughs> oh dear well, that that's the thing i mean when when the overall uh you know approach to this is one of disaster capitalism right i mean everyone's going to want to try to i mean what what the people are going to do is going to be sort of reflective of like the values in society at large and yeah. like and uh the values you know just at an individual level and this might be slightly anecdotal or whatever but I mean, one of the reasons I had to leave India is especially like uh, that the the sort of urban new money class. I mean, old money is even worse in a lot of ways. But this this mindset, this attitude of pure individualism and pure sort of uh, pure selfishness, really, like there's no other way to put it. It's just so prevalent uh, in modern India, you know, and like it's really like look out for number one, make sure that you've got yours covered and don't give a shit about about anyone else. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that, yeah, like this this cheapening of life, 
you know, just the, the value that's placed on life is just very low in a place like India, especially for, for members of the underclass. This is something that's that's very much a hallmark of capitalism, of neoliberalism. And in India, like that happened, that whole process of industrialization and neoliberalization sort of happened in a turbocharged way in, in the space of, yeah, 20 to 30 years. And which is why, you know, you've got this kind of weird sort of hybrid monster of um, these kind of traditional, you know, socially conservative uh, views and these more sort of in in combination with like a sort of ruthless and cold-hearted sort of selfishness that, um, you know, and, and psychopathic selfishness, really, you know, that like, the yeah. um the neoliberalism almost like demands from you in order to succeed you know especially in a place like india where where like the numbers of people are just so high you know like competition is so fucking high um you know it really feels like a you know dog eat dog kind of place like more than anything else you know it really is like like everyone is just trying to eke just that little bit of space for themselves you know did you happen to see that that movie that came out on netflix i think a couple of uh, months ago called The White Tiger. It was like an adaptation of this novel. By, oh, uh, of the um, novel. No, I, I didn't. <clears throat> no, I, I haven't. And I haven't read the book either. Is it is it good? I would recommend, I would highly recommend the book. I think the movie itself is, is, is pretty good in my opinion. The sad thing is that it was produced by, it's like the irony is almost like too much to say, but it was produced by Priyanka Chopra. And oh, she's like, oh, <laughs> I know. Oh, it's oh, insane. Oh. It's actually, it's actually <laughs> insane because the novel itself is like essentially a Marxist novel. And like, I mean, it's just like, yeah. it's almost so tone up because like the character that she plays is like, you know, the sort of well-intentioned, not even well-intentioned, like ignorant liberal who's like profiting off of like, the continued material exploitation of the underclass while sort of like nominally pretending to care about social or identity issues. And well, maybe she just took yeah. it at face value. <laughs> I think she might have, because like, I can't like, understand why there's any other way that she would have agreed to this project. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, would recommend, I would recommend reading the book. It's like a pretty good movie too. It's on Netflix. One of those few very good things the Guardian comes up with every so often. Um, they did an interview with her, I think, last year, and with Priyanka it was Chopra. like nice and the yeah, and it was like all <laughs> nice and they it was like can't we do like you know yeah like twenty minutes left of the interview, and then he mentions her um her support of Modi, and just watching this interview fall apart, <laughs> um, <laughs> and him trying to like rescue it, <laughs> and she keeps trying to talk and like. She's saying these absolutely horrific things about, like, how, like, critics of the Modi government, like, they like to live in the dark, but she's trying to live in the light. Um, (laughs) And her, like, her uh, publicist just desperately trying to stop the interview. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah, this is is an anti-Priyanka Chopra. Just one one point I actually, I wanted to make sort of, like... um, sort of connected to what you were saying earlier is how like yes we need to tie what's going on in india today to you know capitalism and neoliberalism but a lot of this sort of like callous individualism and the selfishness is really also part of the legacy of colonialism in india and i would say that what's going on right now is largely i would almost like like equal it's like a second wave of 
colonialism, <laughs> where you have the sort of the the wealthy upper caste, um, like Hindu elites, I would say, who are largely um, colonizing other parts of India. Like um, I, I'm speaking about this from personal experience. Like my family is Goan, and the status of Goa in India has largely been relegated to this sort of like playground for like you know wealthy um, wealthy northerners to come and like use the casinos and go out drinking. Whereas like yeah, yeah. the actual like indigenous people who've lived on this land for centuries have been sort of ousted <laughs> from like their homes and their beaches, so that private development. Um, could ensue, and this is just the phenomenon that's taking place across India. The, the Indian state has a very sort of imperial, imperialist rather, um, you know, uh, drive to it. Um, especially the way that it deals with uh, indigenous people, for example, and um, yeah, I mean that, and that's that's always been there. And I mean, it, it's it's an occupying force in Kashmir, and um, and so. Yeah, and I think that's very much, you know, lessons that it learned from the colonial period, right? Um, in how to kind of maintain that 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 imperial core and that that broader system of control. Yeah, and that 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 kind of very much also translates into what we're seeing today. And I think this is what we also talked about with regards to um, our previous episode as well, which was about the farmer protests. Um, and sort of, in a way, also, you know, like the way that the farmers have been treated, um, you know, uh, and sort of how opposition is also dealt with, for example. I mean, it's, yeah, it's got a very, yeah, sort of uh, imperialist core to it, basically, um, which, yeah, very much comes from the, uh, from the colonial period. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think we can probably to wrap up now i guess oh yeah uh, of course thanks for having me going off on various <laughs> slightly tired tangents uh but uh yeah sure. it has been really great thanks a lot for for coming <laughs> okay, on thanks for, yeah i enjoyed yeah. it yeah thank you the, the, as, as as depressing as it as it has been but it's also been uh it's been it's been a great chat and um yeah do you want to plug anything as well before we before you go okay <laughs> sweet thanks yeah, I guess uh, I guess I'd like to plug. Um, well, my article is um, on Descent Magazine. It's called "The Roots of India's COVID Crisis." But, but sort of more more importantly, um, I actually really want to plug the Save Malum campaign. Um, there's like several across India right now that are trying to like um, raise awareness in the international community about the desecration of India's like wildlife and. Um, and like we yeah, wildlife sanctuaries and um, and uh, the development that's taking place um, on them like through during the crisis and um, yeah I guess check out Save Mall and they're doing some really important work to raise awareness about this and trying to like raise funds and um, just get international solidarity on this cause. Brilliant! Yeah, we'll definitely share those links and we'll obviously share your your piece as well. Um, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, of thanks. course. Um, but yeah, once again, yeah, thank, thanks a lot for coming on and for your for your great insight. Uh, yeah, yeah as well, and, and obviously, me. best of luck with the with the master's program coming up. Oh, Have you got any any other uh, anything else that you're working on in terms of writing at the moment as well? Uh, yeah, sort of like on a on a totally different front. Um, writing a sort of um, <laughs> expose of the the racialized history of the pro life movement in America um, and how it's been tied to. Huh? 
how how like anti-abortion it's very very interesting <laughs> yeah it's sort of a totally different front but it's about like how anti-abortion um uh lobbyists have essentially um tried to use abortion as like a red herring to like um divert religious attention from like racial justice as like a primary issue um and there's like a lot of right-wing money that goes into it just i was gonna there's interesting. a, a, a be particular very, phrase yeah. i was gonna say but i just can't bring myself to say it out loud <laughs> Say it. <laughs> Actually, don't. Oh, like, say like, it. I feel. I feel like now you need to say oh, it. Oh no, they talk about the the Black Holocaust, but it's um. Oh, oh it's, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly, exactly this sort of shit. And what like, is it? Um, just the the abortion of African American babies. They're calling it the Black mm. Holocaust. Oh my god! Yeah, it's pretty oh, sickening. My god. Fucking hell! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Um. But no, but that sounds that sounds really really interesting, and I'd be oh, very thanks. interested to read it when it's done. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, as always, I'm Arjan. I'm at Arjanistan on Twitter. Uh, I'm Nikita. Uh, I'm at Jeremy Corbyn, and we're on Twitter at Leftover Pod, and Instagram at Left.Over.Pod. And also, if you would like to contribute to our Patreon. We are on patreon.com forward slash leftoverpod. If you are able to help, please do. Massively appreciated. And also massive thanks to everyone else who who already does does support. And um, yeah, big shout out to Sarah on production, Cardio for the music as always, and to all of you for listening. We'll catch you guys next time. Cheers. Yeah. Bye.